Well, while the Nationals may be playing in Baltimore this weekend, heading to Walters is still a great idea. The Tokyo Olympics are finally here, and Walters is a great spot to catch all the action, whether you're into gymnastics or swimming, track and field. Walters has enough TVs to watch everything and anything your heart desires. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now hand to the belt. The kick and the pitch. Swing and a fly ball hit to deep center. Stevenson going back. He's going to have a play. He'll make the catch. Runners will tag. Here comes Birdie from third down the line to score. And Alfaro will go to third of the second out of the inning. It's a sacrifice fly and a run batted in for Miguel Rojas. It's his 27th RBI of the year. The Marlins now lead by the score of 3-1. to one. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, July 22nd, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, it doesn't happen often these days, but it did happen on Wednesday night. The Nationals barely scored. The Nationals had a hard time scoring. This was almost like a game from back, you know, in the good old days of May when the Nats offense struggled a 3-1-10 inning loss to the Miami Marlins. So the Nats are denied the three-game sweep. Nats fall to 45-50 and on the season and are back to being six games behind the National League's leading New York Mets, who did win at the Cincinnati Reds 7-0 on Wednesday. Look, you win the series, so it's hard to complain too much about this. It was, though, disappointing to see the Nats only score the one run. And, Mark, it was such a frustrating night offensively. Four double plays hit by the Nats, 0-for-7, with runners in scoring position. Again, it was a game reminiscent of the way things had been for the Nats offensively in the earlier portion of the season. It felt exactly like that, Al. And, and, you know, I agree in the bigger picture. Hey, you took two out of three from the Marlins. That's what you're supposed to do. But that's a game that's right there for the taking. I mean, you got great pitching from Eric Fetty. You got great work from the bullpen up until the 10th inning. All you got to do is push one run across and you're going to win the game two to one. And they just could not do it. Josh Bell had opportunities struck out with the runner in scoring position in the first, flied out with the runner in scoring position in the eighth. Like you said, the double plays, Turner, two of them, Soto one, Bell one. For whatever reason, it just didn't happen for them at the plate, you know, in this game. And, you know, it's one game, so you're not going to complain about it too much. But boy, you know, you get to the end of the season and they miss out by one game. Here's one you can look back on and say they were this close to winning it. Yeah, the double plays really stand out. We've talked about this before, but Juan Soto hitting all of his double plays, hitting into all of his double plays, hits into another one on Wednesday night to end the bottom of the third. The real mystery, though, is Trey Turner. Two double plays in this game, one in the bottom of the first, one to end the bottom of the fifth. I mean, 
you know, a guy that fast, a guy that good of a hitter, it shouldn't be that way. I know some of this is flukish, and I don't know if there's anything you can really do to avoid hitting into double plays. I mean, some of it is just kind of the variance of the batted ball, but like of all the guys on the Nats that have a double play problem this season, he's certainly not one of like the leading contenders going into the season. And yet, if there's like a nit to pick with Trey offensively this year, it is all of these double plays. He's got 13 of them. And Soto leads the majors with 16, but Turner's pretty close behind. He's like maybe fourth in the majors with 13. And I know people are always surprised when they see that because they say, boy, this isn't a guy who should be hitting a lot of double plays, but he does. I think some of it is he hits the ball hard. You hit soft grounders, it's hard to double them up. But I don't care how fast you are, you hit a rocket right at the shortstop or second baseman, they're going to turn two on you. It doesn't matter how good you are getting down the line. So in some ways, I think it's evidence of how consistently hard he hits the ball. You know, maybe he, you'd like him to elevate it a little bit more like we've talked about with Soto all along. But again, big picture, you really can't complain much about what Trey Turner is doing for you offensively. And if you look at historically, the players who lead the league in double plays, they're usually the best players. <laughs> it's like, like for a long time, Cal Ripken had the all-time record, I think, for double plays hit into. You're playing a lot. You're coming up with runners on base. You're putting the ball in play. You know, more often than not, you are going to get the hits, but a lot of times you're just going to hit the ball hard and hit it right at somebody, and this is what ends up happening. Yeah, Josh Bell hit into the other double play for the Nats on Wednesday night. Rough night for him offensively, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. Gerardo Parra had a rough night offensively as well, 0 for 4 with a strikeout. I did want to bring this up. So Ryan Zimmerman was utilized as a pinch hitter in this game. He grounds out for the second out in the bottom of the 10th inning. Ryan Zimmerman now on the season as a pinch hitter is 4 for 31 His OPS as a pinch hitter this season is 419. This was supposed to be a big part of his value for this year. Zim off the bench and what Zim can do as a pinch hitter. And it has not worked well so far. Look, he had that tear earlier in the season in which he hit for power. Pinch hitting is not necessarily an easy thing to do. So just because you're a good everyday player doesn't mean that you're a good pinch hitter. But I was looking at the numbers after the game. I didn't realize it. He really has had a hard time in that pinch hitting role so far this year, Mark. He has. And it is, like we said, it's a tough role. And you're right. It doesn't necessarily always work out that somebody who's good as an everyday player becomes good in that one at bat off the bench. And you think about it, you're usually coming in late. You're facing the flamethrower from the other team. It often isn't even the ideal platoon matchup, although I know Davey tries to save him for a spot against a lefty late in the game. What I wonder is, because he has not started much here lately, because Bell has been so good, because Zimmerman has cooled off considerably, when you're not starting as much, not getting those four at-bats consistently, is it even tougher to come through when you get that one at-bat late in the game? And I think there's probably something to that. And this is the delicate balance that Davey Martinez has to figure out because he knows Bell has been one of his very best hitters for about two months now, and he doesn't want to take him out of the lineup on any given day when they're trying to score runs. But by the same token, is that maybe hurting Zimmerman for the role that they ultimately need him in? It's a tough spot to be in. Maybe we will see Zim. You know, here's the good news. This weekend in Baltimore, they get the DH. So there you go. We're going to see both of them probably quite a bit. And maybe that'll help get him going again. And then maybe that ultimately helps him then as a pinch hitter when they get back to National League ball. There were some offensive bright spots for the Nats on Wednesday night. And maybe the biggest bright spot of the lineup and of the game was that Alcides Escobar played. It turns out that this hit by pitch that he took on Tuesday night, which looked nasty in the moment. And, you know, with these Nats injuries, I know we got told some good things after the game about the state of uh, Alcides' wrist, but we know how these things go. Like, until you get to the next game, you're not sure. 
Escobar was out there. It was in that starting second baseman. It was their leadoff batter. And he gets on base three more times. This is what Alcides Escobar does. Now, he does it in that sort of, you know, low-rent, trashy fashion. I mean, these weren't like three well-struck baseballs into the left center field gap. But one for four with a single, a hit by pitch, and he reaches base via error. Escobar had a first pitch leadoff single, bottom of the first. Reached base via fielding error by the Marlins shortstop, Miguel Rojas, on a slow roller that just went under Rojas's glove. And maybe one of those instances in which the batter helped to force the error. Escobar can still run. I don't know if Rojas took his eyes off the baseball or what, but the ball went right under his glove. That was to begin the bottom of the third. And then uh, Escobar got hit by a pitch with one out in the bottom of the fifth inning. So, I mean, just to have him out there was nice, but to see him, you know, get right back to doing all CDs, Escobar type things, that was even better. So the lineup didn't come out till about, I think it was about 5.30. And that's because they were checking on him. He had said that he felt well, said, well, why don't you go out there, try to play catch, see how that goes. That went well. Then he said, okay, go try to hit in the cage under the uh, batting tunnel, see how that goes. He was able to do it and, and convince them that he could start. He really wanted to play was the sense that I got. And they were even sort of saying to him, you know, hey, if you need a day, it's okay. He's like, no, no, no. I want to play. I want to lead off. Good for him. And when he got hit by that pitch in the fifth, I'm thinking, oh, no, here we go again. Thankfully, it was not an issue at all. And he played out the rest of the game. But like we said the day before, and I can't believe this is something we've been saying, but they can't afford to lose Alcides Escobar right now. Who would they have to play instead of him? It probably would have been Josh Harrison at second and Jordy Mercer at third. So he has very quickly become indispensable to this team, given the makeup of the roster right now. So everybody was breathing a sigh of relief that he was able to come back and play and look good out there. Yeah, and I want to say this. He plays a nice second base. He had a really good defensive play in the win on Tuesday night for the first out in the top of the fifth. It was his grounder. He makes this nice backhanded stab on a short hop, and then while like running toward third base, throws across his body to get the out. I mean, he's doing things that you're like, how is this guy not in the majors since 2018? And we know why. I mean, the numbers scream why, but uh, he just he continues to be a real nice surprise for the Nats this year, and he was back out there on Wednesday night. We mentioned Juan Soto hitting into the double play. He did get on base a couple of times in this game. Two out, five pitch walk, and a stolen base in the bottom of the first. Had a leadoff single in the bottom of the sixth. A good series for Josh Harrison continued on Wednesday night. How about the walk that Harrison drew in this game? A one out, 11 pitch walk in that Nats one run fourth inning. He was down in the count at 1.12. Also has a two out single in the bottom of the sixth. And the tear of Tress Barrera continued on Wednesday night. Only had one hit. What's wrong with him? Why didn't he have multiple doubles? Uh, But he had a single, a two-out full count single in the bottom of the second inning. Barrera ends up being the Nats catcher in all three games in this series. You know, I guess one of these days, Jan Gomes and Alex Avila will be back. I'm I'm starting to wonder when Avila's ever coming back. Will Avila or Strasburg be back first? But with the series coming up in the Orioles, Tres Barrera now kind of feels like is the the everyday catcher for the time being. And this was four straight that he started without an off day in between. And because they're off on Thursday, I would guess he'll be back out there Friday, maybe Friday and Saturday. And then depending on who else is healthy, we'll see who it is on Sunday. You know, it's funny because they went and acquired Rene Rivera and immediately threw him into the lineup. And the thought there was, well, we have to trust a veteran over a 26-year-old rookie. Well, only a couple days later, they're showing that they trust the 26-year-old rookie much more than the 37-year-old veteran. So good for Trace to show that he has earned that trust from them. The pitchers like working with him. He has delivered at the plate. We'll see how long this continues. Eventually, there's a decision to make when everyone is healthy. My guess is because Barrera has options and they aren't going to want to risk, you know, if somebody else gets hurt down the road, not having, you know, a third catcher. Uh, my guess is that he'll go back down and they'll stick with Gomes and Avila. But I think it's going to be a little while. Gomes is playing catch, but he has not been able to start swinging yet. 
Avila has not been able to run at full speed yet. And that's, you know, concerning that we're approaching, what, two weeks now since he strained both calf muscles and he's still not able to do it. So thankfully for now, they have a catcher who's getting the job done for them. And it's not really somebody we all expected it to be. So it's no longer any day now with Alex Avila. Are we revising that? I give up trying to figure out this one. I think they're all just kind of waiting for him to say, yeah, I'm good to go. And for whatever reason, it hasn't happened yet. Nat Chat is sponsored by Silver Branch Brewing Company, located in downtown Silver Spring, only a one-minute walk from the Silver Spring Metro Station. Silver Branch is a perfect jumping-off point to Metro down to the game. Park at the Cameron Street parking lot and meet up with friends for a beer and a bite to eat before Metroing down. You can also get Silver Branch beer at Nationals Park. Beyond the Gnome World, one of Silver Branch's four flagship beers is available at District Drafts at Section 223. Brewed to be light and refreshing, Beyond the Gnome World won a gold medal for the Saison beer style at the Great American Beer Festival last year. Beyond the Gnome World is deliciously dry and thirst-quenching and the perfect beer for hot summertime ball games. You may not be familiar with Saison, but take our word for it, baseball season is the perfect season for Saison, and buying from District Drafts to support your local breweries is a gnome run. Go to Section 223 and try Beyond the Gnome World the next time that you're at Nats Park, and make sure you stop by Silver Branch, located in Metro Plaza, just steps from the Silver Spring Metro. Silver Branch Brewing Company, when you come in, let them know that the Nats Chat Podcast sent you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Runner goes the pitch, swung on, hit in the air to deep right. This is going to be over the head of Duval and one hop off the big wall and right. Rounding third is Harrison. He will score and into second with a stand-up double and a run batted in is Andrew Stevenson. And this game is all even here at the bottom of the fourth inning. All right, I did want to raise this. So we play this series. Victor Robles only ends up being the Nats starting center fielder in one of the three games. It has been a bizarre season 
for not just Victor the batter, but for the way Davey has handled Victor. Davey pulled the plug so soon on Victor as a leadoff batter. Davey, so many times, as uh, we have discussed ad nauseum on the podcast, has batted Robles in the ninth spot as opposed to the eighth spot. With all of these, uh, you know, ragamuffin types in the Nats lineup lately, we have continued to see a lot of those guys bat ahead of Robles in the lineup. And look, Robles isn't having a good season at all as a hitter. I'm not trying to argue otherwise, but it's just notable the way Davey treats Robles. And now we're at the point where in this series, Andrew Stevenson was the Nats starting center fielder in two of the three games. We didn't hit on this on the podcast. The Nats on Monday recalled Stevenson from AAA Rochester and optioned Andres Machado to Rochester. So for the first time in like forever, the Nats have five bench players now. So Stevenson is back. And Stevenson starts two of the three games in this series in center field. And to his credit, did a good job in this game on Wednesday night. One for three, had an RBI double and a walk. The two-out ribby double in the bottom of the fourth inning. I know it's one series, so I don't want to go nuts over this. But what do you think about that, Mark? That Robles only starts one of the three games. Well, I think there is something there. So I asked Davey a few days ago when Robles wasn't in the lineup. And I said, is that for health reasons or performance reasons? Because remember, he had the uh, dehydration. They had to come out of the game. So I thought maybe there's still some lingering effects of that. And Davey talked his way around the answer. No, that's just, yeah, I just want to get, uh, you know, these guys got a bullpen day today. So, um, you know, I kept the lineup the same as we did yesterday. We, you know, I thought we hit the ball well. Uh, so, you know, he's available to play today. But in doing so, that kind of said enough to me that this is not just a health-related reason, but it was for performance. I think there is some frustration with Robles, certainly not in the field, but at the plate. And not just like what the numbers are, but the approach. Remember you saw the other night, he tried to bunt in a situation that didn't really seem to call for it. Oh, the, the, the bunt that was called back that he, they thought he was out for being, for the ball hitting him in fair territory. It turned out it was a foul ball. He came back and he, I think drew the walk then to extend the inning. But I don't think they love that approach. We've seen base running issues with him. I think they feel like he is pressing, trying to make things happen at the plate because it's been such an issue for him this year. And really, overall, you look at the numbers, and it's not that Stevenson's been great at the plate because he hasn't, but the numbers compared to Robles are pretty comparable offensively. And Stevenson plays a nice center field, maybe not as good as Robles, but it's a good, solid center field. And they feel like right now there's not a drop-off there. And I think it is pretty telling that Stevenson is starting some games. Now, you could say, well, why not Stevenson and left and Robles in center? And the answer there is that they feel like they have more confidence in para. <laughs> in left field, which is uh, pretty amazing, or maybe Harrison and left and Mercer at third. But I mean, we're seeing where Victor Robles is falling on the totem pole right now. And I think there is finally at this point of the season, some frustration that number one, that he's not producing, but number two, his approach and attempts to get the season going back in the right direction. I don't think they love the way he's trying to go about doing it. Man, it really stands out. (laughs) Davey, he sticks it to Robles. I mean, we've seen that throughout this year. For the record, uh, if you go by OPS Plus, Robles' OPS Plus is better than Stevenson's on the year. Of course, Stevenson hasn't had nearly as many opportunities as Robles has had, and Stevenson hasn't had some of the boneheaded moments that Robles has had. You know, I I guess I would just say this. Robles, to me, still has an upside. I, I just, I hate to see that curtailed. And also, the defense has been great. And I was watching Victor play center field in the lone game in the series in which he played. And just watching how quickly he gets to baseballs, I don't think that is appreciated enough. This guy has one of the great first steps in the sport. Balls that some would have to lunge after or dive after, he's just camping under. Like he's having dinner while the ball is coming down to him. I don't want to ever take that for granted here. So 
you know, Stevenson can run, but he's not Robles' defensive equal. So to me, Stevenson's got to be appreciably better as a batter to warrant getting more playing time than Robles. So I think it's going to be interesting to see here. But yeah, especially with no Kyle Schwarber, that Robles still ends up not starting two of the three games in this series. That says a lot. You know, we might look back at this series as kind of a turning point in terms of, man, it's not just that Robles is having a bad season. It's that it's now costing him playing time this season. That's significant. It is. And, you know, there's a larger question here that the organization is going to have to ask at some point. Is he still the center fielder for the long term for them? I don't believe they've given up on him. They know how good he is. They know the upside that is still there. But right now, when they have to win games in the middle of uh, trying to get back into a pennant race, I think there are some who believe that others give him a better chance. And I'm going to give you this stat. And I'm doing this just to push your buttons because I'm not saying that I actually believe this is valid reason for it. But you mentioned Robles having the slightly higher OPS plus. Well, you know what else? They have the same number of RBIs this year, yeah. 12 apiece, and Robles has twice as many at bats. I mean, look, RBI is not that important, but Robles has 12 RBIs over 226 at bats, plus the walks and the hit by pitch, They're like 250 plate appearances, 12 RBIs for a guy who's essentially played every day. And it's not like he doesn't come up with runners on base because he does, even in the number eight spot. So he's really not delivering, especially in moments where there are opportunities to drive in runs. And no, RBI should not be the reason for it. And I don't think that's the reason for why this is. But that, it just stood out to me as I'm looking at their stats comparatively. Yeah, he's also just eight for 13 on stolen bases this season. So, you know, you might say, well, at least if, if he gets on base, he's a real threat in the running game. He, it's not like he's been dynamic in that regard. Look, he, he's been a terrible offensive player. You know, I'm a Robles fan, but how can I argue otherwise? He's been wretched offensively. The power has been non-existent. I get the frustration. I do, though, wonder sometimes, again, like going back to him batting leadoff this year, that's all we heard during spring training. He's going to be the leadoff batter. He's going to be the leadoff batter. And that lasted like five minutes. I just, I still get a kick out of that. But yeah, he's got to perform. He hasn't performed. Well, I mentioned Alcides Escobar playing as being maybe the biggest positive of the game. If that's not the biggest positive of the game, then Eric Fetty's outing was. Really good to see Eric pitch as he did on Wednesday night. The Nats lose, but this was a win for Fetty. Good for the first time in four starts since coming off the 10-day injured list. Eric Fetty allows one run unearned in six innings. We have to attach the caveat that we attached to both John Lester's and Paolo Espino's outings, which is the Marlins are brutal offensively. The Marlins are missing multiple key players. So I don't know how much stock we want to put into these performances by pitchers, but better to do well than not do well. And Fetty did well. Four strikeouts versus one walk. Gave up just four hits, a double and three singles. I thought did a good job of throwing first pitch strikes, being pitch efficient. You know, he only threw 84 pitches over the six innings. Got into some trouble in that top of the fourth. Gives up a run there, although it ends up being unearned thanks to a fielding error by Josh Harrison at third base on what was not necessarily an easy play for Josh to make. But you had in that inning a first pitch leadoff double by Starling Marte. Four pitch walk to Jesus Aguilar to load the bases. And then the run scores on a double play, a first pitch double play off the bat of Joe Panic, So not a lot to complain about from Eric Fetty. And uh, I thought he needed that off really having not looked that good since coming off the 10-day I.O. He needed it and he knew he needed it. And he admitted to us he needed it after the fact. He said like he'd be lying if uh, he didn't say that he was a little bit stressed out here the last five days waiting for the start because he knows that he's not been good. Relief. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't stressing and, you know, the last couple have been pretty awful. So, uh, you know, to get that and give the team a chance to, you know, win that game, uh, it's nice and, you know, it gives me confidence going forward. 
and especially the last one when he just could not throw strikes. He needed 35 pitches to get through the first inning of his last start against the Padres. What did he need in this one? Five. Five pitches, five strikes, three outs. I thought that first inning was absolutely critical to setting the tone for the night, and he went out there and said, I'm going to throw the ball over the plate. And we saw John Lester do the same thing. We saw Paolo Espino do the same thing, especially against a weak lineup. That's how you beat them. Don't let them help you out. Don't give them free passes. Go after them. Make them beat you. And I think it was almost a little bit of a reminder for Eric, who, you know, when he's been at his best, he has been a strikeout pitcher this year. We've complimented him for that. But in this game, he even said he wasn't looking for them. He didn't even get any strikeouts till the fifth when he struck out the side. But prior to that, he's just trying to get the ball over the plate and get contact. And against a lineup like this, you can afford to have that kind of strategy. So good for him for realizing that and turning it around in a pretty big way. He needed this one. Yeah. If you're looking at this series from a Marlins perspective, man, I mean, what does it say about their lineup that they are the get right lineup for the likes of Lester, Espino, and Fetty? Like that, that, that says a lot about this Marlins lineup and the state of it. That three guys who had been having all kinds of problems to varying degrees. And those guys go out there and kill it. I mean, the Lester thing is still something else. John Lester had been pitching like one of the worst pitchers in the sport, and he shuts you out for seven innings. I mean, that tells you quite a bit. Those three starters did not give up an earned run in the series, and collectively, they only issued one walk. Yeah. So that that tells you all you need to know right there, both about how they pitched, but also it does tell you something about the Marlins lineup as well. That's bullpen. Overall, good. You know, I mean, Brad Hand ends up, you know, giving it up there in the top of the 10th inning, but we know how these extra innings go. But I thought there was actually some stuff to really like here from the Nats bullpen in this game. So Kyle Finnegan, a perfect top of the seventh inning. Boy, did he look good over these last two games. Daniel Hudson, a scoreless top of the eighth, you know, required a little bit of work, but he ends up getting the job done. And then Hand Toss is a perfect top of the ninth. So you're rolling here. The bullpen's looking good. Then Hand gives up uh, multiple runs there in the top of the 10th inning. Of course, it begins with the runner on second base. But, you know, Hand also played a role in this. Like, to me, this was not one of these games in which the reliever who gets the loss, oh, you know, poor him like he did nothing wrong. I mean, Hand issued a one-out seven-pitch walk to John Birdie, gave up the one-out first-pitch RBI double to Jorge Alfaro for a 2-1 lead for the Marlins, and then came the one-out RBI sack fly by Miguel Rojas to put the Marlins up 3-1. So, yeah, runner on second, I get it, but... Hand, and you noted this, and I want you to give the stat because it's a great stat. Hand, again, in a game that goes to extras, very good in the ninth, but then not so good in the tenth. So this is the fifth time now this year that he has pitched the ninth and then come back to pitch the tenth. And all five times he's been scored upon in the tenth inning. All five. Now, sometimes that's the inherited runner, so he's not charged. Officially, it's an unearned run when the inherited runner scores. So it's not entirely his fault. But like you said, this was not one of those. I was all ready to really just scream and complain about the extra inning rule when Sandy Leone bunted the inherited runner over to third. And I'm thinking, here we go. Sack bunt, sack fly. They're going to lose the game. And the pitcher did absolutely nothing wrong. Well, no, that's not what happened there. He did earn the loss in this case. And the walk was the key to John Birdie, not a really tough hitter. Now, as Brad Hand is explaining it afterwards, with a runner on third in that spot, he's going for a strikeout. Because he knows contact and the runner's going to score. And so maybe he is nibbling around the zone a little bit and he ends up in a full count and ends up walking him. And there were some close pitches there. Birdie didn't bite on him and he ends up walking them. And so that is a case where if not for the automatic runner, he doesn't have to approach that hitter the same way. When there's a runner on third and it's the winning run or go-ahead run in extra innings and there's less than two outs, you have to try for the strikeout and he couldn't get that there. Now, the double was a first pitch 
to Jorge Alfaro, and that was ripped down the left field line. And then you have a sack fly and a fly out. So, I mean, it wasn't awful, but this is now, like I said, five times where we've seen he has not gotten the job done pitching multiple innings like that. Now, he's had other games where Davey brought him in at some point in the eighth and then back for the ninth. And those, for the most part, have worked. But it's the ninth and tenth that have not. And here's Davey's dilemma there. The alternative is Austin Voth, who was warming in the bullpen at that point. We saw Voth the night before. He gave up the three quick runs and destroyed Paolo Espino's start. And you're now going to ask him with an automatic runner in scoring position to try to hold them down. If Voth gives up the game, we're complaining about that. So it's kind of a no-win situation. When you've already used up your two other best relievers, I don't know what the alternative is. But I just will say, I think we've seen a pattern here to know that Brad Hand, for multiple innings, more often than not, especially in that scenario in the 10th, he's not getting the job done, and you may need to find somebody else to do it when it comes to that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's that big of an ask to ask your top reliever to get two innings down for you, and that he's had a hard time doing it when, like you said, he's displayed a propensity for pitching more than one inning previously, just when it's the eighth into the ninth. It's kind of odd, but, you know, I mean, Brad Hand, let's be honest, he's well compensated, one-year $10.5 million deal. He's a former starter. Even as a reliever, he's had plenty of seasons in which he's had like 60, 70-plus innings, so workload, at least previously, hasn't been much of an issue for him. I know he's a bit older and, and things like that, but uh, he should be able to do a better job in these 10th innings, but you know, I know it's not easy. You have the runner on second. The rule, it sounds like, is going away after this year, the automatic runner in the extra innings, but I do think it's interesting in this regard. It really does reward, A, strikeout pitchers, and B, relievers who are good with inherited runners, and so many relievers aren't. Like That is kind of like a particular skill. Like When the Nats traded for Daniel Hudson two years ago, that was one of the real remarkable things about him. He was having this season from the heavens when it came to not allowing inherited runners to score. And, you know, it's one thing for relievers to accumulate those traditional pitching numbers, but the guys who are really good at coming in, dealing with runners on base, pitching from the stretch, and still succeeding, it's not something every reliever can do. And and I think that is kind of a, it's a quirky thing, but it's maybe kind of a, a neat thing about this rule is that it rewards pitchers who can do that. And if you can't do that, then you're in trouble because you got that guy on second base when you come into the game. I like what you're saying there. And maybe if they ever get to a, a spot where Hudson's available, he might be the better option. The problem is you you don't know in the eighth inning that there's going to be a tenth inning. You're hoping to have won the game. So you can't hold him back for that. You know, my biggest issue with it, and we've discussed this, is that it can, it didn't happen in this case, but it can be the case where a pitcher comes in and does absolutely nothing wrong and takes the loss because it's sack, bunt, sack, fly, game over. So I don't love that part of it. Again, all the indications from Rob Manfred are that it's going away after this year, that it is still a COVID thing. I guess it has helped shorten games or have not been these really long extra inning games, which I've never really minded that much. And I don't think they happen that often. Whatever. I don't love it, but these are the rules. Both teams play by it. So, you know, the Marlins had to deal with it too, and the Nats couldn't even advance their runner, Andrew Stevenson, past second base. So, you know, I guess the Marlins deserve to win the game. But you know what? If you're the Nats, you want to avoid that, just score another run. Some point in the game, score one more run against the Marlins. You win the game in regulation. This never happens. The rule bothers you much more than it bothers me. A, because these games are brutally long to begin with. But B, the rules are in place for both teams. So, I mean, maybe it's unfair to you and your pitcher, but you could also say it's unfair to that team and that pitcher. So just do a better job within the confines of the rules. And the Nats did not do that in this game. Treat the whole family to a fun night of baseball with the Bethesda Big Train at Shirley Povich Field. Big Train Baseball is the perfect mix of small-town charm, 
and big league talent right here in Bethesda's Cabin John Regional Park. Visit BigTrain.org forward slash tickets to reserve your seats for tonight's game and all other home games throughout July. So the Nats have an off day on Thursday. It's weird the way the Nats schedule is laid out. They're coming off the All-Star break, and they get an off day the week after the break, and then they don't have another off day for a while here. Like uh, It's almost like, can we save the off day for when the Nats are really going to need it instead of now when you just had a, you know, a bunch of days off with the break? But anyway, no game for the Nats on Thursday. Then the cupcake portion of the schedule continues with three games at the American League Worst Orioles this weekend. Friday night, 7.05, Patrick Corbin starting. Saturday, Max Scherzer is starting at 6.35. And then Sunday, we have the Sunday afternoon game at 1.05. John Lester will be on the mound. And the pitching matchup for that game, John Lester versus Matt Harvey. Two veterans who from yesteryear were outstanding, but in 2021, things have been a little different. But, you know, I was thinking about more about what Mike Rizzo had to say to you guys, Mark, on Tuesday and saying how, hey, we're taking this dual path and basically how the team performs is going to dictate what we do come the trade deadline. The more you think about this, the trade deadline is a week from Friday. The Nats are going to really have to fall on their faces here for Rizzo to be a seller. You just won two out of three against the Marlins. You have three games coming up at the lowly Orioles. You know, after that is a four-game series at the Phillies, and, and that maybe is the ultimate determinant of what the Nats do. But as long as they don't get swept in these series, how are you going to be in a position to yell and scream, oh, they have to sell, they're out of it? Like, mathematically, it's almost impossible for them to be out of it by the time we get to Friday's trade deadline on July 30th. Right. And I think that's why Rizzo himself said that, like, yes, we have to prepare for the possibility of selling, but I don't expect to be in that position. And that's the right approach. I don't think he should expect it. And if if his team does crater this week, then they should sell because that's a problem that this team isn't going to come back if they can't uh, get through this week of games, given the opposition and come out with a, a winning record out of all this. So they need to take advantage of that. And, you know, I think it's safe to say they probably will. But it does raise that possibility, like we talked about last night, of what if they just kind of tread water here and they're not falling out of it altogether. But what if they're still five or six games out? by the time they get to the 30th and you say, okay, well, we're not sellers, but are really going all in and buying? I don't know. That is that one scenario I talked about where maybe they almost stand pat or whatever move they make is fairly minor. It's just to pick up a reliever or one bench player or something like that. It may not be a big move. So I think they can help force the issue if they go and sweep the Orioles and take, you know, three out of four from the Phillies, something like that. All of a sudden you go into the deadline and you're three games out. Then you can say now, okay, go get us an everyday third baseman. Go get us another lights out reliever, something like that. And, you know, I think there's a good case for it then. If they just sort of play well, but not really that much to make up ground, you know, it might be harder to sell that to Rizzo and to ownership. But the idea of them falling apart completely and saying, okay, that's it. We're trading Hand and Hudson and Scherzer and God knows who else. Things would have to really take a big turn downhill over the next week for that to happen. You wonder if the post-All-Star break portion of the season began with the series against the Orioles and then the Padres series was the one coming up this weekend, how that might change the outlook on things. We'll see. I I, I still have a hard time with doing nothing just because, to me, the Nats are like an 83-win team and doing nothing, I think, keeps them on that path, which is a road to nowhere. At least if you do something, then maybe you have a shot at 90 wins. And conversely, if you're not all that in on this team this season— with the Nats having all these guys on expiring contracts, then I would love to see them sell those guys and try to replenish the farm system. But I still have never felt like that's something that Rizzo truly is inclined to do. 
Uh, some emails we've gotten here lately, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. Man, we get some creative thinkers out there when it comes to the Nats Chat Podcast. Glenn in Arlington is asking if the Nats should sign Steve Lombardozzi. <laughs> he writes, I was visiting family in New York and went to see the Long Island Ducks of the Independent Atlantic League and was surprised to see Steve playing in his second season with them. He's currently batting 321, and every time I check the team box score, he seems to be getting multiple hits and occasional home runs. The night I went to see the Ducks, he had some nice plays in the field. Steve does seem to be the proverbial 4A player, excelling at the plate in the minors and struggling in the majors. However, I wonder if he might have somehow hit his stride in the last two seasons of independent ball. Now, in Glenn's defense, Mark, I will say this. I looked up Steve Lombardozzi's age because I was like, oh, this guy must be ancient by now. He's only 32. <laughs> I just looked up the same. Yeah, I just looked up the exact same. <laughs> I couldn't believe that. He's 32. I, I would thought he's like, you know, 38 or 40 or something. He's 32. But yeah, probably not going to be happening. I tell you, old Lombo, he was a fan favorite. People really love that guy. Good for him for still playing independent baseball, but I'm guessing that's probably not happening. Although, you know what? If Alcides Escobar can happen, then I guess anything can happen, right? <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, Gerardo Parr can come back and Alcides Escobar. But I mean, I'm looking at Lombo's career here. And hey, in 2012, he was really good for them as part of the Goon Squad bench. Nice pickup, nice addition for them. Since then, not a whole lot. I mean, 20 games for the Orioles in 2014, 12 games for the Pirates in 2015 when he went 0 for 10. Didn't play in the big leagues in 2016. Two games for the Marlins in 2017 when he went 0 for 8. And that's the last time he's been in the big league. So he has not had a big league hit since 2014. I get that fans like him. He was a local kid. Uh, you know, all that. It was a nice story when he was up here. That was nine years ago that he was a contributor to the Nationals and was part of that great trade for Doug Fister. And I still remember to this day the number of responses I got when I put out the news they had traded Doug Fister for uh, Steve Lombardozzi, Ian Kroll, and Robbie Ray. And nobody knew who Robbie Ray was at the time. He was a single-A pitcher, but he was the key to the whole uh, equation. It turned out he's had the best career out of all of them. The number of responses I got from people who said, no, not Lombo, <laughs> as though that was like the killer. How could you give up on Steve Lombardozzi to get yourself who would turn out to be a number three starter on a playoff team? People love him, so good for that, but I think they've probably uh, long since uh, said goodbye to Steve Lombardozzi as far as him being a Washington National. Well, I've brought up RBI baseball on Nintendo. Steve Lombardozzi's dad was a killer player for the 87 <laughs> World Series champion Minnesota Twins and was lethal in RBI baseball. Uh, one more email real quick. TF in Portland asks about Carter Keboom saying with all CDs Escobar's injury, although he played on Wednesday night, and with Rizzo looking in every nook and cranny for trade candidates, the absence of Carter Keboom seems pretty conspicuous. Is he playing that poorly, or should we expect to see him traded for whatever Rizzo can get? Carter is hurt, right? He's got a knee injury. He just came back in the last day or two. So he had been with swelling in his knee. He just came back. So I, yeah, look, if he had been healthy, you know, 10 days ago, whenever it was, when all the injuries happened, they were prepared to call him up. And that that's the reason they found themselves in the situation that they got in. And to be honest, they wouldn't probably have Alcides Escobar right now if Carter Keboom had been healthy. So uh, there's an opportunity. They just need to see him go back and show that he's healthy and being productive. You know, Luis Garcia is also healthy again and, and playing well, and they have not made that move yet either. So I'm interested to see where they go here. Obviously, we know 
And based on what Mike Rizzo said, Starlin Castro is not in the equation for the rest of the season. We know they're not going with the status quo at third base for the rest of the season. That's not an option. If they don't call up somebody here pretty soon, that says to me that Mike Rizzo knows he's making a trade, that he's picking up somebody, even if it's not an everyday third baseman, that he's picking up somebody to at least share that job or allow for Harrison to play third or even Escobar to play third, something like that. Because if that's not in their immediate future, there's not really a reason to not call up one of those other kids who can help you when you need it because they don't really have enough infielders at the moment. Yeah, this is an offseason thing. But this offseason, I I think there's going to have to be a reckoning when it comes to Keyboom. There may have to be a reckoning when it comes to Robles. You know, the Nats, to me, they need to get younger. They need to get guys with more versatility. But this is really damaging them that someone like Keyboom isn't here, you know, forget about thriving but just contributing like, like that's a problem, you know, that, that they're in this spot where the whole Carter Keeboom thing has been a big fail. And, and now, you know, if Victor Robles is losing playing time to Andrew Stevenson, that's another younger player, another previously highly touted guy who isn't succeeding. And, you know, and again, this is more of an offseason thing, but like this has got to be figured out here. They, they, Nats have got to get guys who are younger and have upside and who deliver on that upside. Well, we're very pleased to say that the Nats Chat podcast is about to be heard on radio. The Nats Chat Podcast will be airing on 106.1 ESPN in Richmond on Sunday mornings at 9 for the rest of the season, beginning this Sunday. ESPN in Richmond is a great station. I've uh, been on it many times over the years. In fact, was on it uh, earlier on Wednesday with my man Bob Black. But uh, great programming, a lot of great Nationals content on ESPN in Richmond, and we're thrilled to have struck this arrangement. So, sort of a, a best of of the Nats Chat podcast every Sunday morning at nine on ESPN in Richmond. We know of a, we have a lot of listeners in the Richmond area, in the RVA. So we're thrilled to be on ESPN in Richmond starting this Sunday at nine. Very cool. Now I want to know, I guess it's up to Tim to decide what qualifies as the best of, but I hope that it's equal parts you and me and that he's not just prioritizing one of us over the other for the best of editions. Uh, well, I, you know, I know, can a best of only be five minutes? I mean, I think that's part of the problem here. So Tim, <laughs> Tim, will have to, Tim will have to figure that out. But that's a Tim problem. That's not a problem for you and me. We have enough of our own issues uh, that we have to deal with. But yeah, ESPN and Richmond, great station. And uh, we're thrilled to be a part of that. If you have a Nationals question or comment, never hesitate to ask or tell. Uh, you can email us, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet us at Nats underscore chat. If you don't already subscribe to the podcast, please consider doing so. That costs you nothing. And uh, if you have the time, and this does not take much time at all, please give the podcast a five-star rating and uh, just write a review, like a one-sentence review, just saying how much you like the podcast. It does help out the mission that is the Nats Chat Podcast quite a bit, as does buying a t-shirt. We have Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts available for you. You can get those by going to Nats Chat Podcast dot square dot site all nationals radio highlights on Nats chat are courtesy of 1067 the fan for mark zuckerman i'm al galdi we'll talk to you next time on the Nats chat podcast lombardozzi hit 273 as a rookie 308 as a pinch hitter and delivers a pinch hit here a liner to right that leaves runners at first and second very useful coming off the bench for davy johnson and you're right mike Matheny's going to hook chris carpenter right here Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. 
Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.